This podcast has been made possible by Planful and U.S. Bank. This is episode 470. From Middle Market Media, this is CFO Thought Leader, where we speak to finance leaders about driving change within their organizations. On today's show, we speak to CFO Sean Cassidy of Arvinus, another leading-edge biosciences company. Sean retraces his steps to the CFO office and explains how a new corporate structure may be setting apart not only Arvinus, but the biotech sector. Our discussion begins after these words from our sponsor. In an ever-changing world, it can be tough to keep up with the latest FP&A trends and innovations that keep you ahead of the game. Luckily, there's a podcast for that. Tune in to Being Planful, the podcast for finance leaders and planning experts, and stay in the know about what's happening in planning and forecasting. Guests like influencer Chris Ortega, Boston Red Sox CFO Tim Zhu, and Brian Lapidus of AFP will keep you up to speed on how you can put finance in the driver's seat this year. Find the full episodes at beingplanful.com or wherever you get your podcasts. P.S. Think you might make a great guest on the show? Shoot host Rowan Tonkin an email at beingplanful at planful.com. Cassidy, CFO of Arvinus, a biopharmaceutical company focused on developing protein degradation therapeutics for cancers and other difficult-to-treat diseases. Sean, welcome. Thank you very much, Jack. Thanks for having me. So it's great to have um, a life sciences CFO with us once again, and uh, we're looking forward to uh, finding out about Arvinus. But first, uh, Sean, we always like to ask our guests to look back for us and share with us what were those experiences they feel that prepared them uh, for a CFO role. What comes to mind for you? 
Oh, God, there's many uh, through my career. I'm getting a little bit older uh, as, uh, as time goes on. But I spent about the first 10 years of my career at Deloitte, one of the big international uh, consulting and audit firms. And if you look at kind of um, the client base that I served there, it was split uh, between quite a large multinational insurance companies and what they called at the time their middle market, uh, the middle market group. And I, and I quickly migrated to uh, to their middle market group. It was a it was a situation in which I really felt at that time uh, that I could really help my clients, and that was really around things like raising raising capital, uh, doing business development deals, doing acquisitions, and things of that nature. I really didn't get that feeling uh, when I was working uh, at the larger uh, insurance companies. Tell us a little bit about uh, what uh, brought you to our Venice. You've had a, a few CFO tours of duty. Sure. Uh, what was it about this opportunity? Well, you know what? This opportunity is absolutely fantastic. But uh, there were a couple companies uh, prior to our Venice. Actually, once I, when I left Deloitte, um, I went to a company called Curgen Corporation. And at the time, Curgen was a preclinical company, very similar to our Venice, but a, a little bit bigger. And it really had, uh, call it, two primary lines of business. One was their therapeutics-based business as well as uh, another subsidiary that they had, uh, which was uh, wholly owned uh, by Curigen, called 454 Life Sciences. And, and I ended up uh, at 454 Life Sciences really to help that company get its back offices together to support a potential uh, public offering of stock. And that took a couple of years, and that was really a situation in which 454 grew substantially uh, during that time frame. It, when I started, there was probably 20 people. And when uh, the organization actually ended up selling to Roche, not going public, uh, we ended up with about 150 people. Uh, the organization also was growing rapidly in terms of its revenue. Uh, the, the two years that we, uh, prior to selling to Roche, the revenues were pretty much doubling, going from zero, from zero when it was a more of a research-focused organization to about 15 million, uh, then to about 30 million. And the year we uh, sold to Roche, uh, the revenue was projected to hit about 70 million. So it was a very exciting time. The company almost went public, but at the end, uh, it made more sense uh, to do a strategic transaction uh, with Roche. Shortly after that uh, transaction, I actually uh, became the chief financial officer at Curigen, um, which was the previous parent company. And at that time, Curigen now was in the clinic uh, with, uh, with a phase two asset. And it also was the, uh, the situation in which I had a chance to connect with Tim Shannon, who was the CEO of Curigen at the time. He's also the chairman of the Arbenis Board and a venture partner at Kane and Partners. I want to I want to find out what was it about life sciences? I mean, was there a time where it wasn't going to be life sciences? It seems like you have been very focused all along. Or, or tell us otherwise, if not. Well, you know what? Um, you know my my training uh, coming from Deloitte as a CPA, and where can you actually get uh, the satisfaction in any particular uh, position? We were actually helping cure people, uh, and almost all of the organizations I've been have been in cancer therapeutics. So in areas where, you know, there are very difficult diseases with very high met, unmet medical needs, it really does give you a, a sense of accomplishment when you see some of those successes come through uh, the therapeutics-based companies. And at some point, uh, you know, as you uh, become more and more of an expert in any particular industry, it just makes sense to keep, uh, to keep, that, um, to keep that focused discipline. As you described, um, the chairman of the board today is someone you had worked, collaborated with in your past. So, again, your, 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 sort of your ecosystem had taken shape. Yeah, that's actually a great way to characterize it. <laughs>
What is it, though, that attracts you to an opportunity day? I mean, the first time you step into the CFO office, there's it's the rank, it's the title, it's it's you're the, the buck stops here uh, in, in the finance function. What was it that lures you, you know, beyond that, though, the, to the next CFO role? What is it? That's a combination of things. I'd say most of it's the people. Uh, for example, here at our Venice, we have an outstanding founder, Dr. Craig Cruz, who's a professor over at Yale University and really is the inventor uh, of the ProTech technology and our protein degradation platform. So being able to connect with folks such as that uh, make opportunities very successful. They give, they give uh, organizations a much higher chance of success uh, when you're able to connect with, with, with folks with such pedigree. Now, share with us what is your <laughs> what are your top of mind metrics? A top of mind metrics. Um, so you'd probably in any other typical CFO role in a manufacturing organization or a software type company or or anything else, you you typically think of a financial metric. That's really not the case, uh, you know, here at uh, at uh, pharmaceutical companies such as such as Arvenis. It really is success around the science that you're progressing. Uh, and initially, that's in preclinical, in a preclinical setting. So, utilizing whatever compound you're particularly looking to advance into the clinic uh, in a preclinical setting first, and then, uh, you know, treating patients uh, in a phase one trial. So, those are the types of metrics that really create value uh, in an organization. They're not the typical metrics that you see from uh, other folks that you may have talked to, whether that be sales or, or anything along those lines. I think what is important to me. I wouldn't say I track, track this on a daily basis, but on a, on a pretty, pretty regular basis, is quite honestly our burn rate to make sure that the organization has the appropriate capital uh, that it needs to pursue its research programs. All right, that's the one I expected you to, to, to come forward with very quickly. Um, <laughs> you said it's not something you look at daily, but regularly. Uh, tell us more. It really is a situation in which, you know, your, your fundamental uh, responsibility, or at least the way I perceive it, is to make sure that there is adequate capital in the organization at all times to get to the next scientific milestone. Um, when you go back to uh, one of my past lives, call it 454 Life Sciences, um, you know, they're there, and in that situation, you know, revenue was very important and as we signed up customers. Now, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a little fun of this because I want to understand better your, your day-to-day. And I think I don't think you come in in the morning and you look in the safe and it's filled with cash and you turn off the lights <laughs> and go home for the day. But, no. but tell us about what, um, you know, what, what exactly the, the analysis that you're bringing to decision-making, um, the insights you're sharing at the, uh, at the management meeting. What are you bringing forth? What are you communicating as the finance leader? Sure. As you can imagine, science can take, you know, many different avenues. There can be setbacks uh, and there can be advancements. Um, and, you know, from, from my perspective, to really point, what, point those advancements or setbacks out to the rest of the management team, give them a really good sense uh, of what that could potentially mean to the next time that we need to actually raise capital. Uh, most biotechs, uh, in terms of funding their programs, will do that in a couple of different ways. The one is what you'd expect, raising common stock in the public markets or in the private markets, or also partnering portions uh, of, your, uh, uh, of your programs or potentially par- uh, partnering all of your programs uh, with pharmaceutical companies. And Arvinus is a great uh, uh, example of that in which we've taken both approaches, where we've raised uh, private, uh, private capital uh, ended up uh, in a public offering in September uh, of last year, 
And we also have two great deals, which also brought in non-dilutive capital uh, with uh, pharmaceutical companies, uh, one being Genentech and the other being Pfizer. Where were you first along the front lines of that happening? How far back in your career were you participating in those types of building, those types of relationships? Oh, my goodness. Um, that goes pretty far back in my career, probably back to my Deloitte days um, when I was, you know, in my late 20s. Uh, currently, I'm going to be 50 this year. And what, were you, what exactly would you be doing at that early stage in your career in relation to the uh, raising capital? Yeah, sure. So that's actually a very uh, a different, uh, in a different role, right? At that point in time, I was working in the auto practice. So when, in terms of raising capital, you were supporting your clients in getting capital raised, whether that be through um, reviewing their registration statements or private placement memorandums. Uh, it'd be helping them and consulting uh, with them on how to make those particular documents better, uh, whether it be from a regulatory perspective or from a marketing perspective. Uh, and again, again, with all the research, you're trying to educate uh, your investors about the progress that you're making. And this is very involved. In, in every biotech firm, it's a different science. It seems to me that very often in the life sciences realm, we find finance leaders that um, are as much immersed in the science as they are the finances. And uh, there's some obvious reasons for that. But at the same time, it seems to me there is some greater depth of understanding that a biotech finance leader often wields. Would you uh, reflect on that for us? Yeah, I don't know how you could be involved in a therapeutic space company without being interested in the science, uh, how your programs are going to work, whether – you know, for us, for example, we have uh, what we refer to as a bifunctional small molecule, and that is our PROTAC, uh, where that PROTAC actually has two functional ends. One functional end targets a protein of interest, and then we use the other functional end to bring an E3 ligase into close proximity to the targeted protein of interest so we can actually degrade it, which is a very different modality than typical uh, uh, inhibitors, small molecule inhibitors uh, uh, do. So you need to be uh, immersed in the science. You need to have a good understanding of the science so you can talk to it with potential investors and other folks. And that's what I'm getting at. I mean, at any given day, uh, someone in research might signal that there's been made a significant advancement. Whatever that means, mm -hmm. it's moved you towards your goal. Mm -hmm. And I would imagine that it, it's, uh, you know, significant enough to alert the CEO who can talk to the board, and, of course, the CFO. Am I – is that uh, – and, again, those types of advancements are rare, but they do happen. <laughs> they do happen. Am I, am, I, am I describing something that, you know, the circumstances are correct or no? It, it, does it, does it – does the chain happen different? I would say the chain happens slightly different. Um, you know, I think a good example with respect to our Venice is the investment that the organization made in this PROTAC platform to get these compounds, these bifunctional small molecules, to be able to be orally delivered compounds. And that really goes back to 2016 where there really was, a, I would say, a, a bubbling up from our scientists that, that really thought that it was going to be possibly, again, possibly technically feasible to make these PROTACs, which if you look at their molecular weight, make them uh, those types of compounds that may not be orally available. So we had a very long discussion internally uh, with myself, uh, our heads of chemistry, our heads of biology, our CEO at the time, and really recommended to our board to make a significant investment 
into making these compounds oral, which is exactly what we did. And the good thing is that that paid off. Uh, it was it was a situation in which, you know, the investment that we were making was probably in the neighborhood of two times the burn that we were projecting that year, or that or excuse me, that last second half of that particular year, 2016. So very interesting time. We, need, we needed to have faith in our chemists that they could actually do it. We needed to make sure that they actually had the appropriate capital to do it and run the appropriate experiments to do it. And for us, it really did pay off and made it uh, a very successful endeavor. It really is something that differentiates our Venice from some of the other competitors out there that are going after a very similar approach with bifunctional small molecules. So is there ever a time, and, and I'll get off this, but I'm, 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 I love this sort of intersection of finance and you're trying to understand the science, and your, your scientists are trying to uh, explain to you why this is a significant development or why not, why it isn't something you, you might want to mention to the investors. Uh, but at the same time, you might be able to say, well, really, if we just look at the world a little differently, what you just shared doesn't mean much. But if you were to characterize it this way and start measuring this instead of that, that's something I think the investment community would understand or more easily grasp. Is there a reason we don't look at the world that way, or is there a reason we don't share that type of measurement? All right. I don't know how off the map I'm getting here, but <laughs> I'm not sure am if I'm I describing something? Well, well I, I think what it comes down to is what is the value proposition of a, of a drug uh, and whether it is uh, more like a pill, one you just take like a pill, or one that you need to have ejected, which, you know, most antibodies – uh, all antibodies are actually uh, delivered in that in that manner, and you know, as you can, as you would imagine, uh, one that is a pill is is, is much more valuable uh, when it is on the market. Right, and that's the oral uh, that you were describing. And that's the or that's that's exactly right. But you know, it, it, it is. It's a it's it's what I think is a, a key characteristic of our business. Uh, you know, in terms of listening uh, to areas that uh, our scientists want to bring uh, our platform new uh, uncharted areas and, and one in which, you know, we do fund those areas and, and, and we, do get, uh, we do get benefit from them. When we come back, we ask CFO Sean Cassidy for a finance strategic moment. But first, our episode's Thought Leadership Minute. Hello, we're at the Sage Intact Modern SaaS Finance Summit and we've caught up with James Walbaum. CFO of Tampo Development. James, welcome. Thank you, Jack. Great to be here. First off, tell us a little something about Tampo Development. What type of company is that? Sure. So Tampo is a nearshore software development outsourcing firm. Uh, we have uh, uh, over 400 developers in Mexico, and uh, we develop software for U.S. companies, uh, typically SaaS companies, which is why we're here today. Uh, we partner with uh, companies all over North America, helping them build software uh, for cloud applications. So tell us, what are your priorities as a finance leader over the next 12 months? So at Tiempo, we're a rapid growth company. We've been on the Inc. 5000 list for the last six years, uh, and we're continuing that growth pace this year. So we're really focused on scaling up our organization to be able to handle the increased volume of customers that we anticipate over the next 24 months. Well, good news, uh, Thought Leader listeners. James has agreed to answer a few more of our questions. But first, we're going to return to our featured CFO interview. But don't forget... We'll have a few more bonus questions 
for James at the end of today's episode. We'll be back. So, um, and maybe you've already just shared this, but I, we always like to ask for a finance strategic moment, and um, I'm going to make you scrape up another one if that was what you're going to share. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> no, actually, <laughs> that's actually that's that's great. This is actually before we went public. So, um, one of the things that you'll that you'll uh, that you'll see uh, in the biopharmaceutical world is typically companies uh, will get bought uh, most of the time when they're in the clinic based on the success of a particular asset, right? There's a particular asset that's in phase one trials, phase two trials, uh, and, a, and a pharma company comes along, notices that, and ends up buying the organization for it. What ends up happening for those companies that actually have true platforms, uh, those platforms that are applicable to many different programs, uh, you know, there's a lot of value that's left on the table because the company gets acquired, uh, you know, a bit premature without taking uh, advantage of the value of the platform and other, and other assets that may be in its portfolio. So as, uh, as we looked at that uh, particular scenario, and one actually that, a, that, a, uh, that is actually used in the oil and gas industry is a, is a corporate structure uh, in which um, we actually uh, put a limited liability holding company uh, as the parent company. And then as programs matured, we set up separate C-Corps uh, for each of those particular programs. Now, what did that allow us to do? It sent a message out to the marketplace that the company wasn't for sale, uh, but did uh, send a message out to the marketplace that you should start looking at uh, these particular assets in, in, in the event that you'd like to acquire them. And why would you go through all that all that work? Because the, the, the efficiency in which you can return capital to your investors is much greater under that structure than it would be in a single C-Corp scenario. So it, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a corporate structure that is really starting to take hold here in the biopharmaceutical area. Uh, for those companies that are platform-based companies, such as Arvinus. Now, you're you're up in Connecticut. Uh, biotech in Connecticut is sort of uh, in the greater, all the way up to Boston, or do you belong to the New York, uh, New Jersey biotech, or is there such <laughs> a um, geography? Is it is it largely sure. geography based or no? Uh, you know what? I would say 91 is the dividing line, and that goes right through New Haven, Connecticut. Um, I would say that uh, most of our folks um, who, uh, who live um, west of 91 would migrate towards the New York area, and, and those folks that live east would, would migrate more towards the Boston area. I think for the organization itself, it would more akin itself with the Boston-Cambridge area. All right, so um, this is a question that uh, life sciences CFOs normally have no problem answering. And that is, is <laughs> when I ask him what's exciting them about finance and business, and usually it's the, the possibilities of what, what their offerings are. So let me ask it. What, what's exciting you about finance and business today? What's exciting me about finance and business? I think this is a great time to be a biotech company. I think there's a lot of capital flowing right now, both, um, both in the private sector uh, as well as uh, the public sector, other than the blip that we had uh, in the fourth quarter of last year. My personal opinion is that capital is going to continue to flow uh, through uh, all of 2019. So what do I think? I think that gives uh, the opportunity for a lot of innovation uh, in biotech uh, because that capital is available today. What do you wish someone had told you? Now, you had been a controller. You, you climbed the ranks. Uh, you arrive in that CFO office. 
Even so, there's something you wish someone had told you as you took on that leadership title for the first time. What is that something you wish you uh, someone shared with you, whispered in your ear, whatever, as you entered that office? <laughs> That's great. Uh, don't don't get too rigid in your planning uh, for in a, in a biotech type uh, type environment. Um, science changes on the dime. Uh, you can be going in one direction one day and a week later in a completely different direction. Uh, so don't uh, d- don't don't take that um, you know planning view as being too static. It is dynamic, and it's more dynamic I think than in any other industry. Just regarding Deloitte, were you uh, were you an audit? Were you in the audit piece of that or the consulting uh, piece of uh, the Deloitte? Thing? I was actually in the audit piece of that. Yeah, I actually. Um, was there for almost 10 years, uh, not quite, and it was really at a time when I had to make a decision. Um, does it make sense for me to try and become a partner uh, in the Deloitte in the Deloitte group, uh, which was very attractive to me at the time, or is it a time that I actually went out in the industry and did did things I thought at the time, which turned out to be true, would be a little bit more exciting and just a little bit more fulfilling uh, in terms of an overall career. And your your uh, clients were largely life sciences at Deloitte, or not necessarily. That's actually a great question. So there's, they were split. About half of them uh, were large uh, multinational insurance companies, those, uh, those property casualty insurance companies as well as life insurance companies. And then the other half uh, were referred to as middle market, uh, middle market practices Deloitte had. And a portion of those were life science companies. So, uh, and, and, and you were based most likely in Connecticut at that place in time as well. I was. That's right. I was based up in Hartford, Connecticut. Uh, just uh, before we move into our final question, I, I'm just curious, uh, personally and professionally, you've been able to stay uh, ge- geographically in one place. Uh, at, was there a time when a recruiter knocked on the door and tried to get you to move to another metro area or wherever? Uh, yeah, I would say about once a month. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so you like Northeast. I've been. You like the traffic on 91. I know there's a lot more there, but, but uh, no. what do you think has kept you there? You know, a lot of things have kept me here. Um, one is family. Uh, my wife actually uh, works up at Aetna uh, and, you know, has a terrific job that she is uh, very happy with. So that's one of the things. Um, I actually think, quite honestly, Connecticut is a terrific place, um, not just uh, to, uh, to start an organization such as our business, but a great place to, to raise a family as well. And it is Red Sox, not Yankees, I suppose. That 91 When we come back, we ask CFO Sean Cassidy for his 12-month finance leader priorities. And and CFO James Wolbaum answers a few more of my questions. The business landscape is changing quickly. As the pressure to manage expenses efficiently and strategically increases, you need solutions that not only help drive down costs and improve efficiencies, but meet the changing needs of your business. At U.S. Bank, we can help. We'll work with you to uncover your specific payment challenges and bring you proactive and innovative solutions and strategies that help you meet the financial goals of your organization. Our commitment to doing the right thing for our customers has earned us the designation of one of the world's most ethical companies from the Ethisphere Institute for six years in a row. 
To learn more, visit us at usbpayment.com. Our final question is, of course, asking you to look forward and share with us what your priorities over the coming year will be. So over the next 12 months, let's say. Yeah, you know what? There, there, there's, there's, there's several, right? The company's a newly minted public company. Right, that comes along with it, um, you know, many different uh, responsibilities. One is compliance, right? We're in the process of building, um, you know, my organization to make sure that we are compliant with all the 34 Act reporting, 33 Act reporting, and, and, things, and things of that nature. The other piece really is to continually uh, be out in the marketplace, speaking to our investors, the ones uh, that participated uh, in our IPO, uh, one that maybe didn't participate, but uh, will participate soon, so that when the company is ready uh, to raise another round of capital, that we have that investor base and they're hungry to do that. Sean Cassidy, thank you for joining us on CFO Vault Leader. Well, great. Thanks so much for having me. Hello, we're back at the Modern SaaS Finance Summit, and we're speaking with James Wolbaum, CFO of Tampo Development. James, our next question, what are those metrics that you're focusing on before your first cup of coffee in the morning? So we feel like really focus on uh, our customer acquisition costs, uh, on our go-to-market strategy. Uh, we're really focused around a lot of the uh, same metrics that our SaaS clients are. We see ourselves as a recurring revenue-based company, so MMR, ARR, customer churn are all big things that we're focused on, and we uh, use the Intact platform to help us measure those things. Now, is there a non-financial metric that has increasingly become top of mind for you? Anything come to mind when I ask for a non? Might be the net promoter score. Could be employee surveys internally. Anything like that? Yeah, so I would say uh, employee churn uh, is a big deal for us. As a professional services organization and uh, providing software developers, really focus on retention of our key employees and uh, overall employee satisfaction. So we spend a lot of time in our HRS system uh, evaluating employee career paths, employee engagement, and those sorts of things. Now, Am I right? Are, are your customers largely SaaS development uh, software companies? Our customers, our customers are all cloud-enabled software users, um, some of which uh, resell the software, in which case they would be a, soft, a SaaS company, or they're a, a software-enabled professional service company where they develop a cloud software solution, but they use that to uh, engage and allow them to deliver another service to their end customer. Can you tell us something about uh, in your and uh, your role has become increasingly customer centric. Can you tell us something unique about serving these types of customers? They're very data-driven, I would imagine, which makes your job all the more data-driven at the same time. Sure, our customers are very data-driven, but they're also very outcome-driven. Um, you know, we here at the conference have been a lot of conversations about um, deploying the software, making sure that the uh, that the sales marketing team are prepared to, to manage the scale when things are released. Uh, and where we really help focus our customers is on this idea of aligning with outcomes. Uh, they really don't don't care uh, how great we build the software unless somebody buys it. And so our focus is on making sure our development teams are very aligned with our customers to get code into the marketplace that meets the customer objective. And so there's lots of steps involved in that, and that's where we really try and differentiate ourselves from some of our competitors. James Wellbaum, thank you for answering our questions. Thank you, Jack. 
Hello, listeners. Do us a favor. Be certain to subscribe to CFO Thought Leader on Apple Podcasts, or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or Google Play. If you like the show, please recommend it to a friend. Oh, and by the way, the CFO Yearbook 2021 Print Edition debuts on Amazon this quarter, featuring 100 profiles of finance leaders from our 2020 season. Would you like to learn more about our CFO guests? Order the CFO Yearbook 2021. Thank you for supporting our efforts to bring you career journeys of CFOs driving change. We'll be back with another episode very soon. Thank you for listening.